BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. It's not often that a book about numbers finds a publisher and is released to the general public. But listeners of this show, I'm sure, will agree that math and equations and numbers in general have the ability to explain almost anything we can conceive of in the universe. Sometimes, though, it takes a bit of translation. And I, for one, often need a lot of help. So I was delighted to talk to Tony Padilla. He's a leading theoretical physicist and cosmologist at the University of Nottingham. And in 2016, he and his collaborator shared the Buchalter Cosmology Prize for their work on the cosmological constant. He's also a YouTube star, creating videos for Numberphile, many of which have been viewed millions of times. So he seemed like just the right person to explain some of these amazing numbers to me, and also to show how understanding these numbers gives us a glimpse, not just of how we measure the universe, but ultimately, the nature of reality itself. Tony Padilla, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, lovely to be here. So I have to say that I'm kind of scared of numbers. Whenever I have like a mathematician or a theoretical physicist on the show, I feel totally out of my element. Except that like, there are times when I can, if I can kind of visualize a number, I feel like then I, I'm okay, I can understand it. But even in the book jacket, you recommend that there are some numbers that I really even shouldn't try to visualize because it might lead my head to become a black hole. <laughs> black hole head. Okay, so so let's, let's start there. Um, why is it that some numbers can make my head explode, literally? <laughs> Well, they, 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 yeah, they would they would make your head collapse into a black hole. So it's kind of the opposite of explode, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, it's all to do with the fact. So what, what I'm talking about there is is that there's a number, well, very big numbers, but a very big number like this number, Graham's number, which was um, for a long time, you know, the sort of largest number ever to have been used in a mathematical proof, um, finite number, of course. And it's really big. It's bigger than any of the sort of numbers that you would normally talk about, you know, 
you know, even when you talk about big numbers like a billion or a trillion or a quadrillion, it's way bigger than any of those guys, right? So it, it, it's just like you wouldn't come across it in any sort of everyday everyday existence. It just wouldn't happen. It's completely out there. But it's still a number that, that exists and has been used by, by mathematicians. So I, what I thought was a real, really nice way to sort of picture how big it was was, well, suppose you actually imagine this number in your head. Literally, it's sort of digits that, that make it up sort of one by one written out in your head. What would happen? And what would happen is that your head would collapse into a black hole long before you ever got anywhere near seeing the whole number. And the reason is... It's to do with the fact that each individual digit in that number carries some information about the number, right? It's just like, it tells you something. It tells you that that digit is in the number. So it gives you some information. And one of the things we know in physics is that, is that information actually weighs. It actually weighs. It, it has mass. It has energy. I mean, an intuitive way to see that is like in your mobile phone and, you know, sort of when, when you add some information to, to your mobile phone, some, you know, some data or something, the energy levels in the electron trap will, will move and actually they move up and, and that makes the, the phone ever so slightly heavier. So when you, when you upload a photo to your phone, you're making it ever so slightly heavier. I mean, it's in, imperceptible, of course, but, but the point is that information weighs. And so because there's so much information in Graham's number, you're adding an awful lot of mass to your head if you're trying to picture it in your head. And if you add a lot of mass to a very, you know, to a small area, then the only thing that can store that mass is a black hole. It's literally going to collapse your head into a black hole. And well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes uh, a lot of sense. And I can actually visualize that happen. But I won't I won't do it too long, uh, lest all that information gets into my head. But that sort of makes me wonder, as you're talking about this, and as someone who's really interested in the brain, we think about information in the brain as being stored. And, and that's actually, in, in some ways, it's not really true. It's not like there are cells that permanently, I mean, maybe they change a little bit, but it's still a biological organ that is like always changing, always active. And if you take away its biological ability to metabolize, it no longer functions. And so the information is gone. And so I wondered, like, what do you think about sort of how our brains then add information to themselves? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. I mean, I'm not a biologist so, or neuroscientist, so, so this is probably going to com come across a little bit amateur, but, but it's certainly, it, it, it is interesting. And obviously, I think, you know, the brain uh, stores information, we believe, through, you know, sort of synapses going off and, and so on and so forth, and um, neurons firing and, 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 and that. And you can sort of count how much information that the brain could store, but actually there's a paper by a physicist um, from Munich a very esteemed physicist called Gear Diwali. And uh, he sort of speculated that maybe the brain could store information in a way that was more akin to how a black hole stores information. Now, if it can do that, then it might have a much more powerful storage capacity than in the naive way that sort of storing it through the way the neurons fire, you know, just sort of like a sort of mesh of information, if you like. I don't think we fully know, is, is my understanding. We, we don't think we fully know how the brain stores information and how effective it can be at storing information. As I said, one of Gear's ideas is that actually it could be much more effective than we realize, and it could try to store information a bit more like a black hole, like he claims a black hole stores information. We actually don't know. There's no consensus on how a black hole stores information either. So there's a lot of speculation on all sides with this, with this discussion. 
So and keeping on to the you know topic of weight and adding weight, you know, one of, one of the things that when I was reading your book that made me laugh out loud was that you start your course about gravity with a, a simple sentence that gravity is fake. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, I kind of expect people who are uh, more on the new age, you know, sort of bent to sort of make comments like that. So, okay, so tell me about it. Why why is gravity an illusion? Why is it fake? How can it not exist? It is fake. So whenever whenever I say that in my my, uh, gravity class, you know, it's one of the first things I come out with and the students get very upset. It's like, you know, this course is basically fake. What are you even doing? (laughs) (laughs) But it's completely true. And, and the reason the reason you know it's true is that you could sort of do away with gravity. So one of the things you could do, for example, is a really radical experiment you could try out. Now, I'm not suggesting any of your listeners try this, but it's something you could try, right? You could climb to the top of the Burj Khalifa. I talk about this in the book, which is the tallest building in the world in, in Dubai. And you could get into a blacked out box. So you've no windows, you can't see outside. And then somebody chucks this, this box off the building. Now, what's going to happen? Now, that if let's just neglect air resistance to keep things simple, right? That box is going to accelerate downwards due to gravity, but so are you. Okay, so you're both going to be going in tandem. And you can't see outside the box, and you don't know that it's going to crash to earth in some horrible event. All you can see is that you're inside this box, and both you and the box and the, and the floor of the box are accelerating at the same rate. And what will happen is you will feel weightless. You will actually become weightless in that box. So effectively, you've done away with gravity. So in that sense, gravity really is fake. And this was the sort of insight, thinking about experiments like this is what what led Einstein to really realize that gravity wasn't a force like the other forces that we talk about, like the forces of uh, electromagnetism or the nuclear forces that go on deep inside atoms. It's somehow different. And what he speculated and, and showed was that was that it's actually the curvature of space and time. It's the shape of space and time. So it's not a force in the traditional sense of the other ones. It really is the shape of space-time. And the reason it's fake is that you can zoom in to a very small region of space-time, and you cannot see that it's bent or twisted. You can sort of eliminate that bending and twisted just by zooming in. It's very much the same concept that the ancients thought that the Earth was flat. Why did they think it was flat? It's because they were zoomed in, right? If you step back from the Earth and look at it from far away, you can see it's very clearly a sphere, right? Or Mm -hmm. a spheroid. But if you're zoomed in, you might be tricked into thinking it's flat. It's the same as space-time. If you zoom into space-time, you can be tricked into thinking it isn't curved. And if it's not curved and gravity is that curvature, then you can sort of see that you can do away with gravity and that's exactly what's happening when you jump off the Burj Khalifa in a blacked out box. You're eliminating gravity altogether. So if you can eliminate it, then it's kind of fake, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting way to think about it. You know, I struggle with this idea of, of gravity bending space-time sort of just because it's hard for me to picture, but the image of the person in the box really gives me something to like hang on to. But you also have this really interesting example of Usain Bolt and um, slowing down time and the twin paradox. So I wonder if you could kind of walk us through the logic of that example, because that too, I found really compelling. One of the things that Einstein taught us was that um, there isn't like a, a, a giant clock in the sky that tells everybody the time. That thing just doesn't exist. Yeah, don't don't tell my son that because it, it, it's an important part of his. No, no, his yeah, no, it's true though. It's true though, right? <laughs> so, so, so there is no giant clock in the sky. There's just what it is is, is everybody has their own clock and that ticks at, at, a, at their rate. 
right? And so if somebody's moving relative to somebody else, then their clock, you know, the, 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 the watch on their wrist will actually tick more slowly. Okay, so, so time's actually moving more slowly. So the one way that you can think, people normally talk about this in terms of spaceships going really, really fast and how their clocks are ticking more slowly and all that. But I like to talk about it in the context of Usain Bolt because he's the fastest man on earth, right? So, so therefore, let's think about that because that's fun, right? So he was, um, of course, he when he broke the world record, I think it was in, in, uh, in Berlin, and um, he was running very fast. And then everybody in the stadium was essentially still relative to him, right? So time was actually moving more slowly for him. So this is incredible. So actually, so then you could ask the question, has he actually sort of jumped forward in time in a way is, at the end of the race? So you could ask the question, so time moving more slowly for him. So at the end of the race, he's actually aged less than everybody in the stadium. So they all get back together. He meets everybody in the stadium, but he's actually aged less. Now, this isn't just sort of magic. This isn't just some equations that Einstein wrote down. This is, we've experimentally tested these things and we've tested them not on Usain Bolt. Nobody's bothered to do that, but we've sent atomic clocks whizzing around the earth at very high speeds. And we've seen that they've actually aged less than their counterpart clocks on earth. So it's incredible. So this is a real phenomenon. So when you apply it to Usain Bolt, you can apply it to Usain Bolt. And you see that actually, he actually aged a little, by running so fast, he aged a little bit less than everybody watching in the stadium that day, all due to the effects of relativity. So I don't know if you've seen the new Pixar movie, Buzz Lightyear, but that's essentially the plot of the movie, that this, this toy that was the inspiration for Toy Story, or one of them, one of the characters, now, okay, maybe I'm spoiling it for some people, but uh, basically gets on a spaceship and it goes so fast that when he comes back, everyone else is like four years older and he's the same age. And he does this over and over and over again as he's trying to get people off of this planet. And like reading the Usain Bolt example made me realize that obviously the, the geniuses at Pixar were using this idea and taking it to its extreme. And so like if we did take it to the extreme do you think that we as humans would ever get to a point where our astronauts or cosmonauts would actually come back to Earth quite like significantly observably younger <laughs> than their, you know, twins, than their counterparts? So that's a really, really good question. I, I, th I think if you're just using the, the, the kind of effects we were talking about in the case of, of Usain Bolt and just going fast or, or Buzz Lightyear or, or whatever, something like that, then I think it would be challenging. And the, re the reason is, to, to have anything, there was a sort of, you know, a really significant amount. And the, the reason is simple, is, is that it costs a lot of energy to accelerate somebody up to speeds that are kind of close to the speed of light, which is where that, this kind of effect starts to become really meaningful. You know, I talk about the number, the, the amount of difference it makes for Usain Bolt, the speed he was going, and you can calculate it. It's a, it's a small deviation. But if you really want it to be meaningful, where you're coming back and you're significantly younger than the people that stayed at home on Earth, then you need to be going up at, at, at very relativistic speeds, close to the speed of light. And to do that, you've got to accelerate up to that speed. And it's really hard. And the reason it's hard to accelerate up to the speed of light is that you can't go faster. So there's, there's something physically that stops you from going faster than light. And it starts that process of trying to stop you from going faster than light kicks in even before you reach light speed is it's the growth of your resistance to acceleration which is your inertia which is your mass 
So your mass grows and grows and grows as you accelerate up to higher and higher speeds. And eventually it just grows so big that it's just impossible to accelerate you. You just don't have the energy resources to do it. So I think it's unlikely. But a way that you could possibly achieve it, which I think you see in the film Interstellar, is by going and wandering off close to a black hole if you dare. And if you do that, then you get a similar effect, but through gravity, even though gravity is fake. Uh, yeah, so I think you're trying to tell me that Star Wars is wrong. Uh, <laughs> I don't know well, if like, <laughs> it's like fake that they can't get light speed. So uh, maybe we should move on to uh, before you destroy like my love of of, uh, of that science fiction. You have talked about though that you don't have to be a cosmos time travel in this way. You talked about a cabbie driver. Is that more along the same lines, or are we talking about something? you know, fundamentally different. No, that's exactly the same effect. The cabbie driver is going around and, you know, for every every second that, that, that people are stood still relative to the, to the cab, he's aging that little bit less. And of course, you accumulate it. This guy's driving through New York City for 40, 50 years of their life and constantly driving, then you can, you can it can add up. The effect can add up. Now, it's not going to add up to, to four or five years, unfortunately, for the cabbie, but it might add up to a few microseconds, which is still... Okay, well done. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Speaking more of, about sort of twins, you also spent a long time talking about the existence of doppelgangers. And this gets to a contemplation of just the vastness of the universe and these like really big numbers. And so I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, about sort of like, it, it's sometimes hard for me to imagine how we define the universe with a, with a number because it seems to change in terms of like, you know, what constitutes the universe and how we measure it. So tell me a little bit about like, what is the current thinking about how big the universe is, how that corresponds to some of these numbers and how we can actually visualize it. Yeah, so when you, when you think about how big the universe is, there's kind of two ways that you can, you can think about it. The first is you can talk about the observable universe, which is the 
kind of the part of the universe that we could see even in principle, because ultimately light has a finite speed, right? It's not an infinite speed. So, and nothing can go faster than light. And the universe is only 13.8 billion years old. And so there's a limit to how far light can have traveled. And so that puts a sort of bound on, on, on the sort of size of the universe that we could even see. And that's what we call the observable universe. That's about 10 to the 26 meters. So one with, with 26 zeros meters. That's how big the observable universe is. Now you can ask the question, what happens when you get to that 10 to the 26 meter? It's not a, there's not a wall there. There's not some sort of, you know, wall which says this is the end of the universe. Now, now turn back. That's, that's not the case. We don't know, right? We don't know what's beyond there. It's, we, we can't see it. And it could be that the universe extends much, much further than that. It's, it's entirely possible. One of the things we, we do try to measure is how bent the universe is. So you can imagine that the universe might be like a giant ball so that you could go all, all the way around and come back where you started. And you could ask, well, how big is that ball? Well, you can sort of guess just by measuring how bendy it is. So the less bendy it is, the bigger it is. The more bendy it is, the smaller it is. So we try to measure that bendiness. And what that bendiness tells us is that the universe, I think it's at least 250 times larger than that, that sort of you know, observable size. It's at least 250 times bigger than that. But it may be many, many more times bigger. We don't know. Truth is, we don't know. And one of the things we can think about, there are theories of the early universe, for example, that solve interesting cosmological problems that uh, actually predict that the universe could be truly gargantuan, like way beyond the sort of the observable realm, you know, perhaps even a Googleplex in size, which in meters, which is, which is the thing I talked about in the book and, and what leads me to, to speculate about doppelgangers. Yeah. So, well, you want to talk about that, but before we talk about that, you know, I just have like a, a really stupid question. Like, why can't anything be faster than light? What's so special about light that makes it the fastest thing in the known universe? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good question. So, so what makes light special is not so much that it's the fastest thing. It's that everybody agrees that it sort of goes at that speed, that it goes at roughly 300 million meters per second, that that's the light speed. So the speed of light is the speed of light. It never changes. Now, you might say, well, isn't that obvious? But no, it's not obvious because if you're sort of driving down a motorway at, at, at 70 miles per hour, now you're driving at 70 miles per hour relative to the road, but relative to cars going in the opposite direction at 70 miles per hour, you're driving at 140 miles per hour, right? Mm -hmm. So th th that's how speeds seem to, you know, velocities seem to work, but not when light is involved. Whoever is looking at a light, so the light from your headlamps is moving away from you at speed of light, but it's also moving away from the guys going in the opposite direction at the speed of light. It's the same speed. And so it's always the same speed. That's what makes light special. And why is that true? Well, it comes from the fact that light, the speed of light is an intrinsic part of the laws of, of electricity and magnetism. It tells us how fast an electromagnetic wave goes. And Einstein realized that you can't change those laws. Those laws shouldn't depend on whether you're moving or not. So the speed of light must be the same for everybody, regardless of their motion, or regardless of, you know, you know, if they're just moving at some constant velocity relative to one another. So this is what's special about it. And a consequence of that is that nothing can go faster than light. It's just the mathematics then leads you to this is a barrier that should not be crossed. But the key, really key thing is not that light is the fastest speed, it's that it's always the same thing. The speed of light is always the speed of light. 
that's what um, Einstein's always said that he he rather his theory had been called the theory of invariance. In other words, the theory of the invariance of the speed of light, that the speed of light is the same for everybody, rather than the theory of relativity. So yeah, that's what's important about light. I mean, there's something really comforting about that. And so I kind of want to hold on to that and as we go into this question of how big the universe is. So a Google, that's like one followed by a hundred zeros, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then it gets even bigger than that if you add the suffix plex to it, right? That's right. Then you get a Google zeros. And if you do the Google duplex, that has a Google plex zeros. And you have a Google triplex that has a Google duplex zero. And you can go on like that really, go really crazy, really big, very quickly. It, I mean, it seems like eventually there it would be finite. You know, like, I mean, well, I guess, I guess, no, I guess, I guess if there would, you could never stop that, right? So you would just keep adding Googles to whatever you have, and then it just goes on forever. Yeah, you can build up larger and larger objects. So as I said, you start off with a Google. You say, that's got a hundred, one with a hundred zeros. You then say, I've got a Google Plex. That's a one followed by a Google zeros. And then a Google duplex is a one followed by a Google Plex zeros. And yeah, you could iterate that process forever and ever. Actually, the original definition of a Googleplex wasn't wasn't as clean as that. It was the person that came up with it, who was who was um, Edward Kasnett, who was a physicist at, at Columbia University, and he was getting his nephew to to help him with some of these namings and, and so on. And uh, when he said, "What should a Googleplex be?" I wanted it to be this really big number that's much bigger than a Google. And so his his nephew, his nine year old boy at the time, called Milton Serrata, and he said, "Well." it should be a one followed by zeros until you get tired, which is just a bit, is a bit <laughs> imprecise for a mathematician, right? So it's, uh, so he said, well, I'm not having that. So he, he went with a, with a Google Play, should be a one followed by a Google zeros. Okay, so now that we know it's a very large number, tell us about your theory or your consideration about so the, how this relates to the size of the, of the universe, not the observable one, but the entire one. So one of the themes of the book is to try to bring these numbers, which are, at some level, just numbers, right? So Googleplex is just a number. It's, it's, it's a very big number. And there's a beautiful, you know, some beautiful maths in, in thinking about how you get there. But at the same time, how can I really picture it? It comes back to like what we did with Graham's number. How can I really imagine it? And the way to do that for me is always try to bring it into the physical world, to try to sort of imagine it in, in our physical realm somehow. And so one of the things I thought about was, what, what if I had a, Google, a universe that was a Googleplex across in, in say, meters, whatever, kilometers or miles it doesn't really make a lot of difference what would that universe i mean the universe could be that big and what would its properties be what would be some interesting phenomena that you'd find and one of the things you would find is that indeed doppelgangers existed and i really mean genuine doppelgangers as an exact copies of, of, of you Indra, exact copies of me exact copies of, of president biden you know there's, 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 there's literally exact copies of i mean really exact copies as in not just lookalikes but Atoms arranged in exactly the same way, neurons firing in the same way, so they've got the same thoughts, and really exact copies right down to the sort of quantum DNA, the same quantum state. So truly, I mean, almost indistinguishable in that sense. And that's just because the number is so large that the universe would have to repeat itself? I mean, that was kind of where I didn't quite get, like, why would this be a, a, a necessary consequence? Isn't there like an infinite number of ways in which these atoms can collect themselves? Exactly. So, so the answer to that is no, right? And, and it's because gravity stops it being true. And gravity plays a really important role here. So you can ask the question, right? Exactly as you've just done is, 
if we look at sort of the volume of space that, that you occupy and you can ask how many different ways are there to arrange all the building blocks of that space. Now you can call them atoms or you can call them, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call them, but, but, but let's say atoms. So the building blocks of that space, how can I, how many different ways can I arrange them? The answer is not infinite. You might think it is, but, but it's not. Gravity prevents it being infinite, basically because black, because of black holes. Black holes present this sort of cutoff. They, they sort of guarantee that there's only a finite number of arrangements that you could possibly have in a small region of space. And so, so that is just something fun, fundamental about gravity that, that, that we learn from this. And so, so the consequence is, is there are only a finite number of arrangements for, for, for the atoms that, that make up, make up you or, or make up any sort of volume of space the same size. And so as you move across space, you just, each point, you're going to sample one of them. So, so you take the volume of space you're occupying and the arrangement of atoms are, are very injury-like and that's it. That's great. But then you look at the space next to you and that's different. It's a different arrangement. Fine. Then you go to the one next to you. You know, two along, but it's different again. And then you go all the way across this Google Plissian universe. And the number of arrangements that you could have in principle is less than the number of samplings that you make. And it's actually way less. So it's inevitable you get repetitions. And actually, it's, it's, it's essentially inevitable you get repetitions of even unlikely things like, like you or me or, or President Biden. So they might be quite rare arrangements compared to, say, empty space. But nevertheless, there's some probability of them happening. And the size of the universe is so much bigger than the number of arrangements that you know you just overwhelm the odds emphatically. So you're gonna not just gonna get doppelgangers, you're gonna get many doppelgangers. Okay, before we leave these big numbers and and go into the the tiny ones, I just have one last question. Do we know the universe is a ball, <laughs> or like I mean, I, I could imagine it could be an infinite variety of shapes, or is there some physical reason why? we would think that that's the most likely case. Because, you know, when you talk about the bendiness, I can think, well, that's just maybe a curve. Like, I mean, maybe it's bumpy, you know, <laughs> and maybe we're just seeing this one little part of it. Yeah, no, no, no. So, so no, we don't know that, right? I and mean, it's definitely going to be bumpy on some sort of local, you know, there are definitely local bumps. I mean, the sun creates a, a local bump in our solar system in the shape of the universe. So it's definitely got little local bumps. But what, you, what we're talking about is on, on very, very large scales, you know, when we look at the, we really step back from the universe. Does it look approximately like a ball? Because we expect there's something called the the sort of cosmological principle, which says that no point is special in the universe. And if that's the case, then you can argue that it's it could be a ball, but it doesn't have to be. It could also be just like a, a flat plane, like sort of an analog, a three dimensional analog of a of a flat piece of paper. So something like rather than a ball, it's like flat. Or it could even be saddle shaped, so shaped like a like a horse's saddle. So these are the, the three possibilities that people normally talk about, the most common ones. We don't know which of those it is, right? We know that if, if it, it could be a ball, but if it is a ball, it's a very large ball. But it's hard to tell the difference between a very large ball and something which is actually a plane, right? They, they, you know, unless you zoom right out, it's hard to tell the difference. And we, we haven't been able to tell the difference. And we, we don't know the answer to that. Instinctively, I like the idea that it's a ball because that's finite. And I just like the idea that the universe is finite, but that's pure prejudice. That's that's pure anti anti infinite prejudice, which is not really acceptable. <laughs> but it, but it's not like a hot dog. It's got to be one of these three things. Like we know, it's not just like a cylinder. Well, that would break the cosmological principle, so it wouldn't look the same everywhere. But uh, right, right, right. Okay, imagine, you can imagine it's certainly a torus, which is like a donut. Okay, right. That's a genuine possibility and a real really interesting one. 
So let's talk now about like the tiny numbers. I, I mean, I understand the mind fascination with thinking about numbers that are bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But when you get smaller and smaller and smaller, you also come up to the same problem that you can like, you can chisel away at a number infinitely until it, it it's like just, you know, gets so, 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 so small. But in terms of like the little numbers, which one is your favorite? And what does it tell us? Ah, so, so so my favorite is the one that's dominated my my whole career, which is which is ten to the minus one hundred and twenty, you know, so which is zero point, and then you've got one hundred and nineteen zeros, and then a one, right? It's a really really small number, and it's somehow it's it, it's a measure of how unlikely our universe is, right? So so it, there's this crazy problem in in physics which nobody really. Well, outside of physics, we talk about we don't talk about it that much because it's really embarrassing. But within physics, it's one of the biggest problems in theoretical physics physics today, and that's it's called the cosmological constant problem. And what it says is, is you can ask, how much does the universe weigh? Right? How, how much should it does it weigh? And okay, well, what do I really mean by that? Well, let's let's remove take out all the stars and planets. Let's take and all the people and all the aliens and all the little green men. Take out all that stuff. And so you've just got empty space left over. And you say, well, how much does that weigh? And the answer you would think is, well, nothing, right? It's empty space. But that's not true. And the reason is because of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics tells us that empty space is not really a dull and uninteresting place that you would imagine. It's actually a sort of seething broth of, of virtual particles popping in and out of existence. And this, this sort of bubbling extravaganza is really actually causes the universe to sort of to weigh a bit. And of course, that weight will in turn cause the universe to bend. And we can use our best theories that we have that describe other areas of physics amazingly well. And we can try to calculate how much weight this vacuum of space has that, you know, the, the, em em the empty space of our universe, how much weight does it have? And the answer we get is a huge number. And then we can say, okay, so that's what our theory tells us. Now let's actually try to measure how much it's bending space. And we can measure that. And it comes out as a really, really small number. And the ratio of the two, the, the small and the big, is 10 to the minus 120. It's a horrendously bad estimate. The one that our theoretical estimate is horrendous compared to the actual observed value. And so it's a great mystery. How, why are we getting this crazy big answer? And the universe is actually showing us this really tiny observed answer. And so, so those two things don't seem to line up at all. It's, it's, it's a huge mystery. And, and as I said, it's, it's, it's considered one of the biggest problems in, in theoretical physics today. Even in your book, you, you highlight the fact that in some ways, a lot of us find it um, despairing to think that we live in this vast, vast universe and we're, you know, our lives are, you know, essentially meaningless blips. But in, in the book, like right at the point where you go from the large numbers to the little numbers, you warn us that it's actually the little numbers that are going to be even more frightening in terms of our existential crisis. And I, is that, and I kind of get what you're saying with here now, like in this, in the sense it's like the so unlikely that the universe would have existed to begin with. So how do you, reconcile that with the fact that the universe does exist, at least so we think it does. <laughs> um, and then there's like this whole certainty of if it's as big as we think it is, or as you think it is, there's dope, you know, everything's like repeated. So like, how do you reconcile that paradox? Yeah. So, so I mean, it, it is a great mystery as to, as to why, why the universe doesn't weigh anything like as much as we, we, we expect. It's, it's a good job. It doesn't, because if it did, 
it would have bent itself into oblivion within a moment of creation, right? Literally, the universe would have been born and it had just gone straight away because it was just crushing itself under its own weight. So it's a huge relief that it, it, it isn't as heavy as our calculations predict it should be. But maybe in there lies the answer to the question, right? Maybe the reason it's actually much lighter than we thought, which allows a much larger universe, maybe the reason is precisely because we exist. And this, this comes down to something called the anthropic principle, which says, imagine a multiverse, imagine a whole great many universes. They have huge numbers of different uh, weights, if you like. Some are very heavy, like our calculations predict. The vast majority will be very heavy, like our calculations predict. And that's why our calculations predict them. But occasionally you can get really cute cancellations. And when those cute cancellations kick in, they make the universe light. And when they make the universe light, they give it the chance to grow and get big. And the minute they do that, they have a chance for stars and planets to form. And then little green men and eventually humans can form around on those planets. And that's why we're here to measure it. So maybe our existence and the existence of complex life is very much linked to the fact that we measure a very, very light you know, universe compared to a very heavy one. So now, listeners, you know why... Tony Padilla's book is called Fantastic Numbers uh, and Where to Find Them, A Cosmic Quest from Zero to Infinity, uh, available now at your favorite bookseller. Tony Padilla, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, please subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stephen Meyer Awal, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.